Hey everybody, it's Tisa and Katie with Hearts and Hooves, Turquoise and Trauma, and we are super excited. We have Dr. Danielson with us today, and she works at NDSU with the Department of, is it Health? Public Health. Correct, Dr. Danielson? Yes, yep, NDSU Department of Public Health. Awesome. Do you want to just give us a little history on, on yourself and why you joined us today? Yeah, so I have been uh, partnering with uh, Katie and her colleagues at Nuetsa Hidatsa Sanish College and have been doing some trainings around adverse childhood experiences and trauma-informed practices. And the background that I have is uh, my PhD is in human development. And the emphasis of the program was, is gerontology, which is the study of aging. But I took a, a life course approach because a lot of my practical experience, uh, 20 plus years of uh, research and evaluation um, in sort of applied social and, and public health has been about maternal and child health. And I've really become interested in adverse childhood experiences and those trauma-informed practices. And so a life course approach is really looking at how those experiences in childhood have impacts across um, you know, the different stages of our life. And um, I'm, I'm interested in, in successful aging and I'm particularly interested uh, in the prevention of adverse childhood experiences, but also helping achieve um, a better quality of life for adults that that already have, uh, you know, experienced adversity and trauma in childhood, and, and how to help them have a better quality aging experience. With that last sentence being said, Dr. Um, Danielson, we have gotten different viewpoints on trauma, and they're all just interesting different takes. Could you give us your definition of trauma and adversity? Yeah, I, I was thinking about how I define trauma and uh, people who know me know that I like to give a lot of context. So I was trying to think if I could give like a short definition. I guess trauma is in the context that, I, that I'm working is something that we experience that we don't necessarily have the capability to sort of absorb in a in a, a neutral or positive way. I think about it in terms of different levels of stress and all of us experience stress and positive stress. We actually, you know, want that say for our children because that helps them build their their resiliency and you know we know that that things are going to come up in life that you have to be able to kind of handle um but toxic stress is when there's stress that happens from experiences that are um generally sort of unpredictable chronic um and you know what's happening physiologically is we're really being bathed in stress hormones like cortisol and our bodies are not designed to handle those stress hormones for, for that long. Basically it's supposed to be a, a fight, flight or freeze response that, that happens. 
But if you're a child growing up in a home that has, um, you know, where, where, where the child is experiencing physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, or, you know, if there's, there's ongoing emotional or physical neglect, or uh, we also look at experiences in the home that create that sort of unpredictable stress. And that can be, you know, if you have a, 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 a adult in the household, a parent, a caregiver who has um, mental illness, and, and I would focus specifically on, you know, mental illness that's not being treated, and um, substance abuse, um, there's domestic violence in the home, and then some things like if you have divorce or separation or an incarcerated parent, and when I talk about those as traumas, I'm, I'm talking about what is really a, if you think about both capturing sort of what the dynamic in the home might be um, prior to, you know, that event happening, but also then the disruption of an important um, attachment relationship in a child's life. And so what we know from um, the effects of, of this type of toxic stress is that it, you know, we understand better what the mechanisms are over the last couple of decades. And it has to do with um, neuroscience helps us understand a lot about it and um, differences in how the brain is going to develop. And so there's, there's going to be a lot more emphasis on sort of that, um, you know, more, more basic part of the brain that uh, is designed to respond to those threats versus the part of our brain that, you know, when things are calm and, and benevolent in our lives that we, um, you know, get more of that prefrontal cortex development, um, you know, as those like executive functioning skills, when we think about our ability to plan and our ability to um, be organized and, you know, how, how we process memory, those types of things. Um, another comment I'd make about trauma is a lot of people think about medical trauma uh, when they hear the word trauma. So, you know, we do use the term ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. I've used the term childhood adversity. So uh, of course it's, it's not um, mutually exclusive, you know, a, a experience of a major car accident can be a, a significant source of emotional and, and physiological trauma, um, you know, being exposed to community violence. Um, ACEs, the Adverse Childhood Experiences um, original study from the 1990s really focused on what was happening inside the home and as this field continues to develop, they're also looking at what's happening in the community. Um, as I mentioned, like the community violence, bullying in schools, um, but also experiences of racism. Uh, cultural trauma is, is another term that relates closely to historical trauma. And, and these are those traumas that are happening on more of a, a collective basis. Um, there's a, a definition. Um, that, um, let's see, look up her name, um, basically relates to kind of a collective emotional wounding. Um, and so historical trauma is a, a really important concept when we're talking about our indigenous communities um, in, in North Dakota, where we are, but uh, you know, across um, the, the Americas and the world. And, um, we call it historical, but those impacts are, are still being felt today. Um, and then there's another term that people hear a lot, which is intergenerational trauma. And that's where 
the trauma that is experienced um, sort of in one generation can get inadvertently transmitted to the next generation. And um, when we think about what we know about um, on a population level, what the associations are with adverse childhood experiences. So generally experiencing, you know, a, a, a sizable portion of the population hasn't experienced, you know, what you would call any, any ACEs. But as you start to see an accumulation of ACEs, and this is where um, the ACE study is a little bit different. It, it looked at accumulation. And, and of course, the individual traumas are important. And, and research talks about how, you know, sexual abuse among girls at a certain age um, is going to, you know, more likely to have these impacts and physical abuse among boys um, at this age. Um, you know, th th they look deeply into particular types of, of trauma. Um, but what the ACE study did is look at it as, as an accumulation. So how many of these individual traumas uh, did a person have? And we really think of that as basically a dose of toxic stress. And um, depending on that dose of toxic stress, uh, you see these, these long-term um, impacts. And they're, they're across all kinds of domains. They're things like, um, you know, more likely to um, have um, mental health problems, more likely to um, experience substance abuse, more likely to, um, um, you know, have um, unsafe um, sexual activity or initiate sexual activity early. And you think of those as maybe all sort of behavioral, but you're also, you know, more likely to have injuries. You're more likely to um, be, uh, have disruptions to uh, your work experience. Um, and that might be, so for example, the number of days in an average month that um, you have poor physical health or poor mental health. So you see all these impacts uh, across the life course. And um, that's really what you're capturing with that ACE score when we're talking about it kind of at the population health level, which is a public health professional, you know, kind of where I'm looking. So that accumulation uh, is, is really uh, an important concept. Um, so say you're a, a, a young adult who has, uh, you know, a relatively high ACE score, which we generally say is like four or higher. And um, that means you were, you know, maybe more likely to have um, gotten, you know, pregnant sooner. And so now you're um, a young adult who's, whose own brain is developing still, and you have young children, and maybe you're, you're more likely to be experiencing depression and anxiety, and you're more likely to be um, using drugs or alcohol to sort of cope with the trauma. Um, and you're more likely to be having relationship um, difficulties or sort of tumultuous relationships. Those then become the ACE score for those children that are being raised in that environment. And that's how it, um, it becomes sort of an intergenerational cycle. So really powerful. short definition, but <laughs> yeah, that's, that's amazing. So one question. So some of these factors that you, you talked about, um, the toxic, the long-term um, stress factors, how can you see if horses become a part of their lives, how can you see horses um, as a benefit to individuals that have high A scores or, you know, any A score at all? So I am not the expert on horses. And, and I know that there's some really powerful research out there about 
um, about specifically, you know, horse-centered healing and treatment. But I, I also, um, I can contextualize it or, or put it in the context of protective factors. And I, I see horses in that way as a really powerful protective factor. And for indigenous communities, you know, many indigenous communities have cultural ties to horses, including um, the Mandan, Hidatsa, Arikara, um, three affiliated tribes. And so it's really a way to connect youth um, or community members with their culture. And there's a, a lot of research and, and, and um, you know, shared understanding developing around the importance of reclaiming and practicing cultural traditions as a really important protective factor. And that's, you know, protective factors are important for all youth. Um, you know, this is how you, you know, are trying to create thriving, you know, children and communities, but especially those with trauma histories. And when I say that, what you're doing with protective factors is you're, you're kind of trying to balance out um, against the trauma. And um, I think an analogy that has really helped me is, is a theater totter. And uh, some of your listeners might call it seesaws, <laughs> um, which is fewer syllables, but I call them teeter-totters. So if you think about a certain amount of trauma on one side of the, the teeter-totter, if you have the ability to add more positive experiences on the other side, then it's going to shift the balance towards those more positive outcomes. And that helps answer the question for us about why are some people with high ACE courses doing really well? Because it's, it's not destiny. <laughs> Having a high ACE score does not mean um, you know, that all these, these, you know, negative things are going to happen to you as an adult. But when we look at why some people with ACEs are doing better, um, than others with, with high ACE scores, um, those positive experiences are really one of those, um, factors. Now I think of it also in terms of connection, um, we know that touch is healing. We know that um, rhythm is healing. And I do have a personal experience, um, just had the opportunity to do a, 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 a I think it was a, a half day experience with um, the equine program at NDSU as a professional development opportunity. Um, and you came and, and it was a small group and you spent time with the horses and, um, you know, so so I can personally relate to how the experience of um, sort of being in my own body and my own sort of mental state. Um, and, you know, I, I also have um, an ACE score um, and um, that that's fairly high. And the experience of, of um, trying to have a relationship with the horse um, in the way that you guys talk about or, or can talk about more meaningfully but um you know they the way that they need the human to be you know to, to create a positive sort of experience interaction like I couldn't do that right away and um I mean like there were like I cried <laughs> a bunch I mean it was just such a, a, a really powerful and interesting experience that I didn't really have any context going into and so if you think about like what is happening there I really think it's that um that the horse itself then feels like um, a, a really important sort of um, relationship that you're developing that, um, you know, so we also create relationships, you know, with, with human beings. But I, I think in this 
case, what I know about courses is that they are also a relationship that you're building and those, those strong positive relationships um, are really important to people with high A scores. Um, what I also know is that it seems to be that as people work with horses, um, you, you do tend to, you know, for, for those of us with trauma histories that that tends to come up. And so it, it seems to be a, an experience that, um, you know, if you're being facilitated with people who, who understand this and are trained in this, you know, if I had somebody who <laughs> was like, why are you crying? You know, that's not what happened. It was, it was a very um, positive, uplifting experience. And um, so when you're, when you're building that relationship in that context, I think that it's, it's really powerful. Um, so that, that's kind of my answer, I guess, having a little bit of my, my own personal anecdote, but, but just the importance of the relationship um, and, and, and then just more broadly that protective factor that you're building. I think part of that with the horse, um, they can't speak English. You have to be so aware and in the moment to build that relationship in such a unique way because they're not speaking and they're majestic and beautiful on top of it. So there just comes an essence with it to build that relationship. So it's different, but Dr. Danielson, since you obviously have put your life and soul into studying all this and getting your degree in human development, what is your why? Why, why did all this start? So I first learned about adverse childhood experiences um, through my mother, and she is a brilliant woman, um, but um, is a person who has an ACE score of 10. And so if you um, look up, you know, what is your ACE score and, and the original um, study has those five experiences of abuse and neglect and those five household dynamics. Um, Actually, it is nine. We did not have an incarcerated adult. Um, so um, very high ACE score. And, um, you know, she, she's, um, you know, raised me and my, my two siblings and, um, and single mom, you know, um, was um, somebody who experienced um, substance um, use disorder and uh, went into treatment and has been sober for, for decades at this point, something I'm very grateful for. And um, in her mid fifties, which has been about 15 years ago now, she um, started experiencing swelling in her left arm and that prompted her to go into the doctor and she was not doing preventive healthcare visits. And I understood that she wasn't doing that because um, she finds um, with her trauma history, the experiences of, um, you know, healthcare triggering and, and traumatizing. And so she would avoid that, but she was eating well. She was very physically active. She, um, you know, was just generally very healthy. And then when she um, went in to get her arm checked, she, she realized that um, she actually had lymphedema because um, she had stage three breast cancer and two different cancers and each one, one in each breast um, that had spread to lymph nodes. So, um, really, really for her, it was shocking because, you know, not only being healthy, but she was uh, somebody who um, breastfed all of her children and um, didn't have a history of breast cancer, you know, healthy weight, all of these things. So when she started looking into it, she came across the ACE study and realized that 
when you have a really high ACE score, um, you, you do start to see some illnesses like cancer and heart disease that aren't explained just by, oh, you know, was somebody a smoker? And, and again, what they seem to be learning is that there's also an inflammation that comes with that sort of toxic stress and, and that, um, you know, constantly being bathed in, in stress hormones. And the more they learn about inflammation, the more, the more they, you know, understand how that contributes to um, some of these serious illnesses and chronic diseases. So she was just like, you know, if I, if anybody had told me about my ACE score, then, then she might've thought, okay, I'm at risk and I, I should overcome my, my, you know, hesitance to go to doctors for preventive care because this is a risk factor that, that she has. So, um, you know, when I got into the human development field and I was, well, and, and all my experience in maternal and child health. And, and then also as I started, um, you know, having the opportunity to partner with some of the indigenous communities in our area, and I could just see, um, see how trauma was impacting families and um, how that intergenerational trauma was happening. And, and I could see how that worked in our own family. So, um, you know, my, my experiences in life were very different from my mother's and she, you know, she absolutely did her best, but I did still end up with a, a pretty high ACE score myself. And as I started learning about ACEs, I started um, just becoming a lot more compassionate with myself. I was understanding myself better. Some things that I really considered sort of things that I was maybe ashamed of or personal faults and just realizing, okay, you know, in general, there were, there were some, probably some disruptions to my executive functioning. And there's a reason that I'm um, clumsy, you know, and there's a reason that I'm, um, you know, have a really difficult time with um, certain types of, of short-term memory tasks and have a really terrible sense of direction. And, and you're like, wow, the fact that these are connected um, you know, to how my body was developing under stress as a child was just, just kind of blew my mind. But then I was able to also start noticing how that was impacting some of my neighbors and my friends and my colleagues. And then, you know, like I said, I could see that connection to the families that, um, that we were working with and, and just how, how whole communities, you know, being impacted by historical trauma. And so, um, you know, the first part was to really become aware of the science and understand what was happening, but you want more than that. You want to know what to do about it. And so learning more about trauma-informed practices and approaches, um, you know, starting to integrate that into the work that uh, I do. Um, there's a self-healing community framework, a lot around empowerment approaches, um, you know, realizing that trauma-informed practices are really just like basically being a good person and a good neighbor and a good colleague, you know, like, you know, like, okay, even if somebody you're working with doesn't have a history of trauma, you know, being transparent and, you know, having shared decision-making and, um, you know, recognizing that people are the experts in their own experiences and in their own communities, like those are just, you know, good things. Those are all trauma-informed practices, but they're just good things. <laughs> and so, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we thought so. it was some of the things that you just mentioned um, that impacted your executive functioning. Um, there's such a correlation between horses and the impacts of trauma. You said you had trouble with directions, um, being clumsy, motor planning, and just the day-to-day -day tasks 
tasks that we don't even think about in the arena. All of those things are so huge and important um, in any in any writing arena, especially um, in a therapeutic capacity. You know, directions, tacking up your horse with the saddle pad and uh, multiple cinches and headgear and protective boots and clumsy. There's a lot of motor planning that goes into just getting on your horse, being able to cross midline. And, wow. you know, so what you're describing right now, um, this is a bit of an aha moment for me is um, to remind um, when we say that aces aren't destiny, like you, first of all, our executive functioning is still continuing to develop into our at least mid 20s. Um, they're saying maybe as late as 28 now. And also, even if you're older than that, there are strategies that you can come up with. Like, first of all, just recognizing, hey, I'm human. This happened to me. Um, it's not that there's something wrong with me. Um, and then you can compensate. You can come up with strategies. Um, and so what you're just describing um, is, a, is helping me explain again what the benefit of the horses are then, because under caring instruction, you are actually helping build those executive functioning skills. Um, and like you said, midline, you know, those are actually some of the, you know, when we think about the work that um, Dr. Bruce Perry is doing um, around neurosequential, um, his neurosequential framework, that um, you can go back in and, and fill in some of these um, deficits and, and sort of rebuild those building blocks. And, and midline is, is an example, I guess, of one of those. And the rhythm piece, um, there's a, a evidence in, in what Dr. Bruce Perry is saying about the importance of rhythm. And um, so just the experience of, um, you know, that relationship with the horse and being on the horse. So anyway, that, that was just kind of an exciting aha moment for me. <laughs> I'm so happy that you discovered that on our podcast. I think, um, since you brought up Dr. Bruce Perry's neurosequential development model, you know, he believes in the six R's of healing trauma and um, horse people like Tisa and ourselves, like the, his six R's, which are relational, relevant, repetition, rewarding, respectful, and rhythmic. That just screams, you should ride your horse. But it brings us to one last final point. And I know Tisa's thought a lot about this since She's um, kind of co-founded this podcast. What would it look like if horses had ACE scores? Since we have been talking about this right away, my brain goes to all the horses I've ever touched in my life and trained. And there's been so many um, challenges, not because the horse didn't want to do it because they have their own ACE scores. I mean, we don't technically do that in the, the horse world, but if a horse has had some type of experience and they can't talk, so it's, it's our job as a, a trainer or, or a teacher to figure out, they just, to figure out the signs, you know, maybe they hadn't been touched until they were five years old and somebody needs some help because this horse is kicking them, running away, bucking them off, whatever. Well, the trauma was because it was neglected till it was five. In human years, that would be 25. Mm -hmm. So I don't have a basis of what that A score would be, but every horse is different. And I mean, there's some that it's, you know, pretty much roses and rainbows and all that. But for the most part, since horses can't communicate, we have a challenge of mishandling them or it's the communication that blocks it. So 
yeah, this has been all interesting to me because it makes me even more aware of the horses that we're trying to make this great relationship to help other people too. So very enlightening. And if a horse does have, it's just like people. If they have yeah. stress in their environment, they're going to have health problems. Horses actually take stress. I mean, like a newborn baby almost. I mean, any type of stress, they're, they think we're the predator. So automatically when you come into the barn, they're already trying to relieve themselves to run. I mean, that's just mm. the nature of a horse. And we're asking them to perform at high levels. Any type of stress is not going to help them do that because they will have health problems in the moment, the long term. So, yeah, this is all relating <laughs> to a horse and making their world better as well. Yeah, that's really um just really interesting to me because I, I, like I said, I don't have as much context in the horses. Um, what you were just saying gave me some context for, I think, some of what I, in my my one um, anecdotal experience that, um, yeah, they're such powerful animals and you do have a little bit of um, fear yourself and stress that I was experiencing stress and fear. And so um, part of it was was really helping figure out how to, to self-regulate and I mean, I think that's where the tears came, you know, like, um, this is hard. It's hard for me to, you know, to, to self-regulate. And then it wasn't until I could do that, then that the horse and I could, you know, kind of have more of that relationship. So just interesting, um, putting more words to that, but what you're describing is just really fascinating. And, um, I, I don't remember what grade it was, I think probably third grade. And I remember reading absolutely every single book about horses um, that my library, my school library had. And when I think back about some of them, some of them were really, really tragic, terrible stories. Some of them were from the horse's perspective. And so I know I just felt so deeply um, about that. And, and you're absolutely right. They can't tell us. But I think from, from a human perspective, you do start to see the symptoms of high ACE scores, even if you don't know that a person has like specifically what has happened to them. And you can see it in sort of some of their patterns and their decision-making. Um, but, you know, I would say anybody who ever saw what, what my mom was like when she was getting her cancer treatment, you know, she'd just start bawling the moment she entered the the waiting room and they talk about how with trauma-informed approaches that absolutely every person in in the environment should have the understanding of of aces and trauma and about what the trauma-informed approaches look like because your very first experience is you know the person who who greets you um the person who um you know takes takes your information and and that sets the tone and so you know when she's just sitting there bawling and they're just trying to get her address right um, you know, I was that that advocate for her there. And, you know, people need that. Um, I will relate this back to horses, but just there is that the, the, this term sanctuary trauma um, that, you know, I, when I've done some lectures with I'm in the College of Health Professions at NDSU and um, I introduced this term. And, 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 you know, your nurses, your, your pharmacists, your, your doctors that, you know, we're helping, we're, we're in the helping profession. Like, why would this be a traumatizing experience for people? But when you think about the lights, um, the sounds, when you think about, you know, you're being asked to disrobe, you know, some really sensitive kind of scary information, chances are the person 
uh, you know, when you're emotionally activated, they're not going to be hearing really the information, this important information that you're providing. And then, then the doctor is going to wonder about, well, what's, what's wrong with this person? They didn't, you know, they didn't follow up on what I asked them to do. Well, they probably didn't even absorb it in the first place. And so then you think about, okay, well, you've got to one, you know, try to have an advocate with them or two, you know, provide information in more than one, you know, if you're going to do it verbally, I know my doctor's better about like having a summary that they send you with those types of things. Um, but also just being, you know, understanding of how that environment can be triggering. So someone like my mom, you see them behave that way. You don't know exactly what the race score is, but you can say, you can be pretty, you know, pretty sure that, um, that that's operating, right? And like I said, the trauma-informed approaches are not harmful for people who don't have trauma, right? It's, it's just good. So when you're talking about horses, um, I, I, in an earlier conversation, you, you talked about a, a specific horse that um, you could tell, I, I think, um, you could just tell that something had happened to, can you, can you describe that horse a little bit, Tisa? Yeah, this is just one instance. So I've had the, this is just one instance. So I had this horse as a two-year-old and got her from a sale. And throughout her life, I've had her forever. She was deathly afraid of a shot when a certain size person or male would come up to her and then always had a problem with her right front foot getting trim shot. Like it was traumatic every time we would go about these episodes. So I just was aware of that. And if we didn't handle it correctly, like with any other situation with the horse, that's been whatever happened there was bad. I don't know it. She never had to say it, but her actions spoke it. So handling it with kid gloves, setting up the environment to be able to make it happen. Because I mean, in the horse world, we have to draw blood to be able to go places to know they're disease free. We have to trim their feet and working on that trust from the ground up. She trusts me, but when it came to other taller men, it just wasn't going to happen. So we just made the environment better for her to trust. And as, as time went on and it took a long time, it hasn't, it's, it's no longer an issue, but that took years and years and it was awareness. So that's just one minute story of all the things we've dealt with as horse trainers. But it is such a powerful example because, you know, you, you essentially instinctually identified that there was trauma there and you adapted the environment and not in ways that sounds like it was really unreasonable. You just knew, okay, this is going to be a trigger and um, here are situations that make things worse. And so I'm going to choose this person over that person to work with this horse. And in the end, you were able to have, you know, a, a functional performing horse, you know, who was able to still, you know, have a good quality of life as opposed to if somebody you know, had insisted or wasn't paying attention to the signals. And um, so I think, I think that's just incredibly powerful to think about um, how, how horses could have ACE scores. And you could potentially take a history. Problem is, is, is past owners might not want to own up um, maybe to some of the things the horse experienced, but um, one, you know, somebody like yourself, or, you know, if you guys continue to sort of teach people about what that what those signs of trauma looks like and how, what kind of accommodations can you make that can really improve the quality of life of the horse. But, you know, 
you know, it's good, good for the humans that are working with that horse too. So it's really interesting to me because I was always thinking about what the horses have to offer to the humans. Um, and it's just really, really, I don't know, just powerful um, in our conversation today to, to realize, you know, what an impact we can have on the horses as well. Um, and then how, how much that translates to human beings and, um, you know, just basically I, I see these discussions about ACEs for people and horses as a, as a tool to increase compassion. Um, and I don't know that compassion is a value that everybody shares, but if you want to think about it in terms of, oh, return on investment. And a lot of times when we're working in maternal and child health or other fields, the language of, of money or, you know, how much does this save us? Um, that is the frame that is more um, compelling for, for some people. And you're more likely to get people that are able to function well, contribute, you know, um, have good jobs, contribute through their taxes, you know, be, um, you know, heal and be really, you know, positive members of their community. I mean, I see, I see this science, you know, when I, when I see communities that are really experiencing violence and substance abuse, um, you know, these are the people that I want to have conversations about um, trauma. And, you know, this is, this is, this is what's happened to you and to your community and to the, the generations before you. And here, here are things that that can be done about it. And as a community, you can lead that work. It's not that somebody from the outside comes in and has all the answers. And so um, it does, you know, tend to be very empowering. And um, I don't know, I, I find that very rewarding. That's, I guess, what part of what, what drives me as well, so. That's amazing. As always, it's such a pleasure talking to you. And I think we could go on and on. So. If you have time in your schedule, Dr. Danielson, it's safe to say that we'd love to have you on again sometime for a part two. Okay, thank you. I'm happy to. <laughs> yeah, so until then, we'll say um, goodbye, I guess, to our listeners and see you soon. Thank you so much. Thanks for making Monday better, Dr. Danielson. Yep, <laughs> Motivational Monday.